This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the manly, manly Warthog Man Cave. In the piney woods, the wet, soggy piney woods of north central Florida. On a Friday, by golly, uh, moving towards the end of June already. It's June. Uh, Blinkton was gone. I don't, I don't know what happened, but wow, pow, it's gone. And, uh, you know, it's the longest day of the year was uh, two or three days ago. I hope you realize that. We're now moving back toward winter. And uh, just govern yourself accordingly. Uh, we are in the Mellon Law Studio, of course. Uh, Jeffrey Mellon is a big supporter of ours. He's a big supporter of the community, a big asset to the community. Uh, we're in the Mellon Law Studio. He is the only official law firm partner of the University of Florida Gators, and he is a full-service legal uh, place if you need any kind of legal help at all. So uh, we're protected, as you know, 24-7, 365 by crime prevention, which is locally owned. Randy Elrad and John Pastore patronized locally owned. And our wonderful sponsors, on-the-spot cleaners, I really love those people. They're really good people. They are the story of America. They put their shoulder to the work and they get it done. They have um, created this business for themselves, by themselves. Not really, as Obama would say, you didn't do it by yourself, but they've done it with intelligence and talent and a lot of commitment to the right things. Really appreciate them supporting us. Style Cuts, my good buddy, David Ratliff, a loyal guys you'll ever find. I have a big premium on loyalty. And, you know, you can't find it, honesty and integrity and loyalty. And these people are loyal and integrity uh, focused. Uh, of course, we stay in close contact with Alatra Chronicle and Jennifer Cabrera and Len Cabrera. I really respect what they're doing in this community. Uh, Julie Locasio, longtime resident of this community, recently has become a sponsor. Uh, R&R Construction, Lance Lunger, has been a loyal friend for a long time. Uh, always think of him when you think of your construction needs. And I can go on and on and on. Of course, uh, we have always welcoming uh, more people to help us bring it to you. And, of course, we um, appreciate our contributors who are largely unnoticed and unheralded, but you know who you are. And occasionally you get a little note from me thanking you. And uh, that helps us do a lot of the things that we do uh, where we do investigations and and uh, instigation and investigations uh, and the like and that sort of thing, uh, which uh, we don't really, we, we're competing with outfits that have real budgets and all that business. So uh, we appreciate all those people. Um, I want to give a personal shout out to Plantation Mark, who's been a loyal friend of the show for a long, long time. Uh, Matt Cannon's a longtime friend. I'm looking at my names here. Brenda Dolwick is always attending class and is very early. So if I'm leaving anybody out, I'll circle back and try to get with you. Um, we have got our open line Friday. 
Anything you want to talk about, we'll chit-chat about it. Uh, uh, the number is, and we'll probably toss it up on the screen in a minute, is uh, 352-707-9101. There it is. And uh, if you call, uh, production will hear it, put you in the waiting room, and we'll hook you up, and we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. Uh, I do appreciate my astute students who are listening and correcting me when I misspeak. You never, you know, say something stupid. You just misspoke, right? Uh, after all, you know, come on, come on. I mean, I meant to say, you know, how that goes. But yesterday I kept using the term when speaking about the sheriff and the state attorney and the supervisor of elections, charter officers. I know better. They're constitutional officers. And that is the point remains the same. We were told, at least our memory serves us uh, for me and Mark uh, by Kramer, that he could not investigate as a constitutional officer, another constitutional officer. In this case, it was Kim Barton, who was uh, coming uh, around to the jail and that kind of business. And yet, apparently, according to Andrew Kaplan, who says there are dozens and dozens of subpoenas, uh, and we counted those up. A dozen is 12, so dozens and dozens is 24, and dozens and dozens and dozens, you you compound it, uh, needs to be held accountable for that comment, and let's know what's going on here. I did a little further checking into this uh, charter, I mean, constitutional officer uh, uh, investigating another constitutional officer, in this case, the sheriff, and I have found out that a couple of the fellows who got those subpoenas who were law enforcement people had never seen a subpoena like it. It had no case number on it. It's a weird, mysterious thing. Now, you know, Brian Kramer has screwed up the Collier's boss heart thing already. Much discussion. If Bill Cervone had been still the state attorney, Bill Cervone never would have stuck his nose in a civil matter and made it a criminal matter. Boss heart, Collier thing was never a criminal matter. This is what everybody on the street who understands these things says. Kramer is not highly regarded. I'm going to tell you this right now. He's, and he was one of my students years ago. I mean, I can't take account of responsibility for him. But he's not highly regarded in terms of having good judgment about what to stick his nose in. And his constitutional nose. So I just wanted to expand on that story a little bit since people called me and said, Ward, didn't you mean to say constitutional officers? And yes, I certainly did. And then I was offered uh, this backstory by people who are paying attention to this. Um, it is uh, it is an interesting backstory because it's murky. Uh, it seems to be kind of um, uh, it was strange in, 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 in the way it's being conducted. It's unprecedented. Uh, so we're going to follow it as best we can and uh, find out what App Andrew Kaplan claims to know uh, about dozens and dozens. I mean, that's kind of a weird number, you know? And, and uh, so I wanted to put that into the record, into the classroom record uh, and correct it and also expand on it a little bit 
to tell you that it is an odd, I see the message, I'll get to it in this moment. Thank you, Zach. Um, uh, expand on it to um, follow up on it because, you know, this is, uh, this is more than passing strange. So um, we'll find out. This is criminalizing. In other words, this is criminalizing staff management decisions. That's basically all anybody can figure. This is a criminalization of a management situation. Now, there's precedent for this. The county commission has always hated the sheriffs because they can't manage them. And they've always stuck their nose in the sheriff's business. Darnell had to go to Tallahassee to get their nose unstuck. So I wanted to put that into the conversation. Our good buddy Plantation, Mark, uh, is on the line. Uh, Mark, I got a story I want to ask you about, sir. When you start talking, let's, let's have a chat. Mark? Okay, Ward. Here's what's happening here, Mark. As you know the county, because you, you've lived here and you lived on the east side of town, and uh, basically, correct me if I'm wrong, the county kind of runs downhill, does it not, from uh, the upper northern side down to um, the, the uh, Paints Prairie. Now, Mark, since you've been here, there's been a lot of development in the southwest corner of the county. Now, when we go down 241 and approach Jonesville, which in our youthful days was way out in the country, um, we hit sinkholes. Well, guess what's opened up in one of the plush developments here, Mark, down off of Parker Road? Sinkholes, my man, nine of them. And these heavy rains, now here at Windy Hill, we've gotten over 10 inches of rain in the last couple of days. We've got sinkholes opening up in this high-priced neighborhood called Oakmont. Take it away, sir. Yeah, well, okay, Ward. Well, yeah, I lived uh, up the hill on University Avenue at 38th Street. And once you hit up about 47th and headed east, towards Noonan's Lake, it was basically all downhill to Noonan's Lake. But if you went and took a uh, topographical or geological survey map, you'll see that that area above uh, adjacent to Noonan's Lake where I lived, it actually, the ground itself slopes, and the amount of soil that's on top of the limestone actually gets thinner and thinner and thinner as you travel west towards Cedar Keys. And that's why a lot of those uh, western side counties over there have such a problem with sinkholes, just because of the, the amount of dirt. I forget what it was, but it it was something like uh, over around Cedar Keys was only like 10 foot of dirt over top of the limestone. So when it gets dissolved uh, CO2 in it and eats, eats the ground away going in the, in the water, and eats it out, then it just kind of meanders on out with the aquifer, and pretty soon there's not enough dirt out there to hold it up, so you get a sinkhole. Well, Mark, let's give the fans who don't know you what your background is with the Navy. Can you go through that briefly? Because I want to address something I know you have a lot of familiarity with in a moment, and that is this submersible uh, deal that just happened in the search for the Titanic. But first, let's Let's talk about your credentials, really, would you please? Well, uh, 
I graduated from uh, GHS in 70. I was subsequently drafted into Vietnam in 72, joined the Navy. And after the first three and a half years, I re-enlisted, went into the nuclear power, nuclear repair, and nuclear chemical and biological warfare program. And I stuck it out for 30 years and uh, ended up making Master Chief out of the deal. And uh, during that time, I was... Uh, on board a submarine tender. Now, I never dove on them, but I had to know all the technical aspects about them to work on everything from the reactor to the oxygen generators and everything else on board the submarines. And uh, I had a top-secret clearance at the time. I was a radiation worker to boot and a gas-free engineer. So I had to make sure all the compartments and voids we went in were safe to go in and uh, do radiation swipes. All that stuff, and then I served a four-year tour up at sub-school staff in Groton, uh, training the nuclear machinist mates and the fine art of putting back together high-pressure and nuclear piping on the fly when uh, they didn't have really the equipment that we had. So that that's kind of my background, and uh, then when I retired, I moved back to Florida uh, over on the east side, my parents' old house, and when the county commission and the city commission built that wood burning power plant <laughs> just put me a new put me a new place up here on my 12 acres in virginia that was our old hunting camp i bought the uh, i bought 10 acres of one land and two acres of adjacent land and put the house on it and i'm standing here in the bedroom looking at uh all this rain and and all the stuff that i'm picking out of the garden right now i'm probably a month away from uh picking corn and, well, Mark, uh, what's your thoughts about this uh, incident with, uh, uh, if you have any, I don't want to put you on the spot, uh, this submersible uh, going on this journey? Well, I don't know what construction techniques were used in it, but I can tell you this about our submarines. They're, they are very tested, and there's two terms uh, we use. You have a test depth at which... We we will take after repairs to one. We will take it that far, and then the crush depth of the hull is pretty much classified depending on the class of submarine. That's as deep as they can dive without fear of uh, uh, doing what happened to that little submersible. But there's been two. Uh, let's see, the Alvin and uh, the Trieste actually have been to the bottom of the Marianas Trench, which is thirty six thousand feet deep. But they were they were spherical in nature. What you seen on the outside look like a submarine is is called a superstructure, and that's the way ours are built. The pressure hull inside's more like a coke bottle, and then everything on the outside that makes it look like a submarine is just a superstructure with free flood ballast tanks and sonar and all the other kind of stuff uh, that's pretty much hidden. So uh, I think we knew that when it went because we monitor the seabed out there from Europe back to the East Coast. Uh, the system's called SOSIS, and it's been upgraded uh, uh, ever since probably the 80s when we was in the Cold War with Russia. We, we have a system out there that listens to everything that moves surface and subsurface. So if it's in the water and moving, we probably know it's there and how deep it is. So there's something to the story then that um, the Coast Guard or somebody in communication with the Navy Coast Guard uh, heard maybe the moment of implosion. 
Oh yeah, you can you can pick up stuff like that on there. You can pick up whales and you name it. All the all these uh, sounds are basically itemized into a computer, and if it hears something, it'll try to determine exactly what it was, whether it was a whale or something exploding in the water or the screws turning and how fast they're turning, what they call a count rate, and maybe uh, since uh, everybody spies on everybody else, we, we listen to known Russian submarines and take a turn count, and and we can figure out pretty much what the hydrodynamics of their screw is, even down to a nick in a screw changes the resonance of them. So you can look at that and say, well, this is the Vlostov or whatever submarine, and He's out here in the Atlantic, you know, patrolling up and down or something like that. So it's pretty sophisticated systems. And uh, since I retired 20-some years ago, it's uh, I'm sure it's gotten uh, day and night to what I used to deal with when I was in there, Ward. Well, that's an interesting comment that you can tell the screw um, and the noise when it's turning at, uh, uh, from the mechanisms that pick up sound. Well, it appears as if the shortcuts were taken with this submersible craft and it didn't undergo the testing that you just say we put our craft through. Um, And I don't want to put you on the spot about classified information or anything, but uh, can a a sub we've got go to the depth of the Titanic? And if you can't answer I know of only one that we might have, and I've, I've not read any of the real specifications other than this little nuclear reactor, but when I was up in Groton, we had a submarine, three-man, that had its own nuclear reactor, and it could be taken out and deployed, and how deep it could dive, I mean, as far as staying down, you know, it was built just like a big submarine, only it was smaller, and so they made their own oxygen and everything, had their own propulsion all this stuff, but 12,000 feet's getting down there if you want to go figure it, what is it, one atmosphere for every 33 feet you dive and go down in the water, and it's thousands and tens of thousands of pounds per square inch. So, well, it's, it's not uh, something I ever wanted hard to, to say. I, I mean, most of our fast boats and, and boomer boats uh not not going down that far, I can tell you that. <laughs> right, right, right. Amazing. Well, we're talking with uh, our good buddy, Mark Cook, who we call Plantation Mark, fondly, who is a great fan and supporter of the show and and uh, good friends. And when we were on the radio, he'd come by and visit with us in person. And uh, we always enjoyed that with us. He'd bring his wife. And uh, Ken Hillier, who's a service guy, said, good information, Master Chief. Um, and uh, just for those of you who are out there unfamiliar with the hierarchy of the military, Master Chief runs the Navy, I think. Don't you, Mark? I mean, it's not the admirals. It's the master chief. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's almost a fact because uh, once you make chief or senior chief or master chief, uh, usually you're given a junior officer, either a, a butter bar or a lieutenant JG or something like that, an ensign, and uh, it's up to you to get them up to speed on how your division runs and your manpower and problems and how you operate and try to get them into, you know, knowing knowing a little bit of, of your business as far as ship repair and stuff goes. And then, of course, they don't, they don't, they, they usually rotate and say they'll go to combat on a next tour and just get to learn a little bit till they get up to the, you know, lieutenant commander, commander, 
Uh, that way they got a good idea of everything that's going on on the ship and how everybody operates and performs together. Uh, supply and, uh, let's see, who else? The Supply Corps and uh, the Medical Corps, those officers are not line officers. So uh, E-1 in the, in the Navy could take command of a ship if he was the last guy left over a, a admiral in the supply chain. So <laughs> that's just the hierarchy of the way it packs out there, Ward. Very interesting, Mark. Very interesting. Appreciate you calling in. Appreciate all the support. You got anything else you want to chat about before we uh, move along? I'm not in any hurry. I leave you. <laughs> no, I've got a ton of stuff sitting out here on the top of the well. I got a, some 20 year old cantaloupe seeds that finally decided they would sprout. Margaret <laughs> planted in. So now I've got to get them in the ground. I'm looking at about a, eight inches of water standing in the bottom of my garden. But. Uh, Cucumbers are going, the bell peppers are going, the tomatoes are going, the corn's tasseled. I got ears on them now. And uh, yeah, so good. It's, uh, it's all going good up here. If I can just keep the deer, deer eat up all my beans the well, other day. Deer, I'm going to have to go deer, out there. I tell you, every time I see one of these city dwellers post on Facebook, oh, look at the cute little deer. I'm saying, yeah, you ain't got that deer eating your garden, buddy. <laughs> Yeah, and I know it it was a a newborn fawn. It was not too old, a couple of months. He was standing in the road up at the hunting camp. I'd been back in the woods on part of our hunting lease back here on the gator. And when I come back down, me and my friend, there's that deer standing in the middle of the road. And it took off and went right through my woods and and shot out right behind the garden. I don't know where he went from there. I couldn't see through, through the trees, but... I'm sure it was that little one that went over there and eat every bean in the world That's down right. to the stem. That's right. And uh, But I got plenty of seeds, so I, I can go out there and, and replant. I got two more rows of beans down anyway. One's out of the ground and one's starting to come out, so I just go replant these. And That's where I spend most of my time when I'm uh, not listening to you or up there. I got a truckload of wood I've got to go unload or a trailer load of wood sitting in the field. I got to go get the tractor and take it and put it over and get my log splitter back from my neighbor. So yeah, we'll anyway, we're going to have a busy weekend and uh, good talking to you. Ward. We'll catch y'all every day we can. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. Good buddy. That's the Mark Cook plantation. Mark, we call him calling from Virginia from back in the woods where he is the natural man. I mean, he really is. He's a master chief retired from the Navy. Fantastic accomplishments to do that. Really has all the expertise to run the ship and fix anything on the ship. That's It's an amazing, it's an amazing skill. And now back in the woods, practicing all of his art, uh, culinary art and agricultural green thumb. And, and yet he is really one of the most sophisticated uh, in tune people I, I, I know of with the Ward Scott files. He um, frequently will contact me during the day and say, Hey, check out this, check out that. He really is a kind of a elite officer in the research team. So uh, there are others of you out there who are, of course, involved and give me tips. I appreciate those who corrected me yesterday about constitutional officer and charter officer. Um, anytime I do that, uh, you know, misspeak, please let me know. But you just listen to a classic friend. And uh, I wanted you to get an appreciation for some of his military experience and background and knowledge and skill and versatility. Uh, 
Uh, that to me, I'm honored to have that type of uh, student, if you will, in the class, that type of supporter for the show. Well, we were talking about sinkholes when we started talking with Mark. And of course, he knew the thickness of the dirt at the various parts of the state. Uh, doesn't surprise me in the least. Um, and this is a, this is an issue as we go south in the county here. Uh, this uh, subdivision, where if you want to, I don't know, I guess that's what you call them now, uh, known as Oakmont, has nine sinkholes in it, and it's still raining, and raining heavily, um, and is projected to rain heavily for the next few days. I don't know of anything uh, more, it could be more frightening than to all of a sudden be in your house and have it sink into a hole that ain't got no bottom. We got an expression in the country. We're going to go out and see a hole that ain't got no bottom. And we're not exaggerating that. Uh, there's holes in Florida that really ain't got no bottom. They're going to go down to the aquifer. And one of my very interesting research papers I had a student, a student did, uh, and it, way back when, and I remember, is he did research on the Floridian aquifer. And up here where we are, the northern part of Florida, the aquifer is pretty deep. Our well, for example, goes down to 225 feet before it meets the aquifer. And when we bring the water up and we're drilling, we have actually little seashells that come out. That's how we know we're down in the aquifer. But if you get down near Miami or someplace like that, the water is right there at the surface of the land. And it has the possibility of saltwater intrusion and all that business. Hence, you have the swamps and all that business as the whole state kind of declines as we go toward Key West. And if you're in the air, you can't help but think that Florida is not so much land with lakes as water with islands, because there are so many lakes in Florida. And now that you're driving down the road here where we are, you will see retention ponds. And these retention ponds um, are full and spreading over the roads in some cases. So uh, this is the nature of living in Florida. The highlands where the interstate goes, goes right down the spine of Florida. And uh, it's the highest part. And the thinking is, and I talked to geologists about this, that once upon a time, the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf pushed that center part of the state up to the middle and made the highlands and then receded. And if you take a look at the land as it recedes to the east and recedes to the west, it's totally different land, soil, than it is near the highlands where we are. We have this rich black dirt here, hence we can grow a lot of things. But the problem is farmland is being translated into housing projects, and that's going to kill Florida. I just wish we had a way to stop that, you know, to put the brakes on. I know this is odds and ends Friday. So I love odds and ends Friday because we can really talk about whatever we want to talk about. Um, this is a real issue here that we can't, you know, one of the spins is that boy, isn't Florida a great place to come and live? Yeah, but we don't want anybody else coming here. I mean, come on, this happened to Arizona. You know, in Arizona, originally, as I understand it, people started moving out there because they had allergies. 
And because of the desert, they could go out there and get away from the plants. Well, what's the first thing they did when they went there to beautify their homes? They planted plants, plants, and brought their very same allergies back to them. This is kind of what it is here in Florida. Uh, I don't particularly want New Yorkers. I mean, huh? I know a lot have been coming here forever. But hold it now. But you can't hold it. That's the way it is going. Well, that was a pretty interesting half hour there. And if you want to call in and chat, we're certainly going to have the line open. Um, Douglas Whitaker is watching from Mexico. Um, and he just missed Plantation Mark, which was a great conversation. So we're going to be back in a moment after we do the weather. Kind of been already been doing the weather. But we'll do a little bit more crisply. And right back on the Ward Scott Falls. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All these poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! All right, welcome back to Ward Scott Files and Ward's Weather Compliments of Lewis Oil one of our great sponsors. Well, as I've been talking with y'all, we've got a lot of uh, rain. 
But I want to report to you that I'm just seeing coming across uh, the meteorology world here that there's a tropical storm, Cindy, that has developed over the open Atlantic. Uh, let me see where Cindy is. Uh, Brent is 160 miles west of St. Vincent in the eastern Caribbean. Uh, let's see, maximum sustained winds of 60 miles an hour. Okay, not going to affect us. Uh, there's some wind shear involved and all that business. Uh, let's see where this Cindy is. Um, cannot figure out yet where it is here. I'm just seeing it come up. Here it is. Here it is. Late Thursday night, that's last night, Tropical Depression 4 strengthened into Tropical Storm Cindy. That formed about 5 a.m. today. It's tracking west-northwest at 15 miles an hour. It's about 990 miles east of the Lesser Antilles. Right now, it has a maximum sustained winds of 45 miles an hour, and it's not likely to impact land. There you go. But let's put it in perspective. The hurricane season is upon us. You know, there's a couple of stories, it's odds and ends here, of course, that I can follow up on this with. Um, I guess I'll take, since I just did the weather, um, I don't know if you heard about this or not. I thought it was kind of interesting. Therefore, you got to bear with me. A meteorologist um, a graduate of Plymouth State University in New Hampshire. He is a dedicated news reporter. He's reported about climate change and global warming. He started doing that in 2019 when he was working as a weekend meteorologist in Boston. Then he hosted and produced a weekly series of two and a half hour specials covering the quote unquote havoc wrecked by the climate change across the planet. So he's been covering the climate change. And um, when smoke started drifting across the United States in, earlier in June, um, he said he sought to inform viewers not only about whether the air was safe to breathe, but how the fuel was, fire was fueled by Earth's violently changing weather. And the reaction was the people in Iowa, where he was at that time in Des Moines, didn't like it. And all of a sudden, uh, he began getting death threats about making the weather political, making everything political. And people began to react against it. Quit interpreting the weather through the prism of climate change. Well, he has since bailed out of the meteorologist business. This is according to USA Today. I thought that was kind of interesting. Hey, man, we just want the weather. We don't want to get into the John Kerry version of the weather. And if you do, we'll get after you. Wow. 
on the heels of what you just heard about our good buddy plantation, Mark, and his experience as a master chief in the Navy. I thought this article might interest you. Uh, This is where we are now with the military. Uh, This is according to the Washington Times. They can't get anybody to join the military. The U.S. military, according to this analysis, which is done by uh, Ben Wolfgang uh, at the Washington Times, the U.S. military has got a hell of a time attracting and retraining recruits. And some of the things which are keeping it from happening, well, they say it's the worst recruiting environment in the 50-year history of the countries. I like this word, by the way. Experiment with an all-volunteer force. Now, with the exception of the Marine Corps, which is interesting, each service expects to fall short of its recruiting goals in 2023. The Army expects to be about 10,000 soldiers short of its recruiting goal. The Navy is about to be 6,000 short. The Air Force will miss its mark by about 10,000. In spite of the fact that the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force are offering enlistment bonuses to entice recruits. But the incentives that once made military service attractive, the private sector employers are now using to fill these, desperately fill these job vacancies. It used to be, according to the recruiters, they'd say, hey, we'll pay for your college. But now, according to the recruiters, a lot of companies are doing the same thing. The crisis, according to this analysis, has already extended to National Guard units. Um, Especially complicated one more time of this COVID-19 pandemic. So in case you're wondering what you just heard a moment ago with Mark Cook talking about being a master chief for 30 years in the Navy. um, Hey, might be a vanishing kind of story. The Department of Defense says that this is the most challenging recruiting environment that the country's ever faced. Um, even with the Air National Guard, the National Guard, all this business um, and the enticements and the things that once upon a time kind of work, that's not working. And it's a national problem. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, where are we with our foreign policy? We talk with Ted Yoho about this all the time. Um, it's It's kind of a... Meanwhile, we got... China getting ready to train troops in Cuba. Huh? The telephone number is 352 
707-9101 in case you want to chat. Another odd thing, I've never been a fan of this guy. I don't know, something never sat well with me and him. Aaron Rodgers. The quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, who's now the quarterback for the New York Jets. He says in a recent interview that he has relied, and I can't say the use of this word, some of you may know it, Aya Huska, which is a very strong, how you say that again? Ayahuasca. Production knows that name. Ayahuasca. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. A very strong hallucinogen. Well, he said he was taking this substance with teammates. And it was life-altering. And that other athletes reached out to him about the subject. I don't know a darn thing about it, but it's a psychedelic. Now, come on. I go back to the days of the 60s. I knew Tim Leary. I knew Ken Kesey. Ken Kesey and I spent some time together. He wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You know, he was, along with one of his buddies, an early guinea, guinea pig in California State Collegiate System for experimentation with psychedelics, particularly LSD. Ken Casey was also, it happens to be, the Northwest Coast heavyweight wrestling champion. And when I finally met Ken Casey, and I'd read One Flew of Cuckoo's Nest, I was just awed by it. I asked him about, you know, how he wrote it and everything. And he said he wrote the opening of it. The opening word is they're out there. High on peyote. And then he said he was always stoned and carried his own marijuana with him. And his whole point about marijuana was never smoke any marijuana but your own that you grew because you know what's on it. He said, don't smoke anything else because the government's trying to kill us. The government is putting herbicides on this marijuana and you'll ingest it. That was the other thing I remember him saying. But he was in the drug experiments conducted in the college with professors like Tim Leary, who was over at Harvard and was a drug, drug guru. And it was all psilocybin or you name it, some of the terms that I heard. I've never liked those sorts of things because I don't like being out of control. I don't even like taking aspirin. But, you know, it didn't mean I, paraquat, paraquat, yeah, that Mark volunteered here. 
uh, I never I never put them down because I thought they were very fascinating people. You learn something from everybody. And they were kind of responsible people in spite, in spite of the fact that their experiences were not normal experiences, if you will. The normal students were not over there in the drug experiment, the hallucinogenic drug experiment classes at Harvard and California. So here we have Aaron Rodgers, who says he's been interested in psychedelics, particularly as a treatment for issues such as post-traumatic stress syndrome. Now, I got a lot of sympathy for guys who've gone through that, boy. Until you had a life-altering incident or even series of incidents, you may not really appreciate that post-traumatic stress syndrome. And it doesn't have to be a war. Anything that's traumatic can affect your psyche. And it's very difficult to plow your way out of that sometimes. So I'm not ready really to make any comments about Rogers except to say that he, as a back-to-back MVP, he said Ayahuasca helped him win of those awards. And he acknowledges that he has been mocked for his lifestyle. He had a four-day darkness retreat he went on after he left the Packers for the Jets. This is the type of dude it turns out he is. But I'm not ready to say it's not an integral part of who he is. And he certainly has done admirable, successful things in his profession. Um, interesting. This was printed in The Guardian. I don't know. I learned that new term, Ayahuasca. I'm going to look a little bit more into that. It's a, it's a phenomenon that I have some familiarity with guys who are, as I say, in that world. Um, Ken Kesey and Tim Leary, both of whom uh, visited me at my house once upon a time here when I lived in Gainesville. Spent quite a little bit of time with him. Here is an interesting story, and, you know, lots of times it takes a long, long time. Or I'm not going to call it the truth, but it takes a long, long time for patterns to become established that you sort of thought all the time. We're going to be established. I guess I said that in a pretty neat way. But this article is in the journal. The title is Black People Are Departing Cities in the North. Now, my first response as a Southerner is 
It's about time. You should never have gone there in the first place. It was a trick by the Yankees. It was a trick by the Yankees. You should have remained in an agrarian lifestyle and become a farmer or your own plantation owner. Nothing preventing that. You can have an economy that you can sustain a family on with land. If you don't grow crops for money, but you grow them for food. The South made a terrible mistake when it started growing crops for money. Crop was cotton. Well, it led to all this stuff, you know, about slavery and this and that. I don't need to go through that stuff. But it resulted in the blacks buying into the northern, come on down. Come on to Chicago. Come on to Detroit. But what happened when they got there, this, of course, is why you got the Chicago blues and the Detroit sound and all this great music, because the blacks brought that with them out of the south from gospel music. From the church. Blacks once upon a time were the strongest Christians you could possibly find. That's what made Martin Luther King so powerful. He was able to put the guilt on white people. Because he said, we've been living the true Christian life. Humility. Suffering. But the mistake was, and then preaching as a preacher that the salvation was here on earth when everybody knows Christianity teaches that it's in the heavens. It's not on earth. So suffering becomes an admirable moral quality in true Christianity. But the blacks bought the Yankee industrial society lie. And when the blacks went to Chicago, they were free. They were free to live in wherever they could live economically, but not with the whites, because the whites would not give the blacks employment that would allow them to move to the white neighborhoods. These are the northern whites who did this, not the southern whites. The southern whites are getting the blame for it. There was a huge difference between racism and slavery. Huge. The racism in the south, read William Faulkner. It never came about until the Yankees came down here and destroyed the southern aristocracy, which was humane and substitute corporate capitalism as owner of the land and displaced labor and put it in the ghettos where they didn't even have unions. Now, 2023, the latest U.S. Census Bureau estimates that black residents are continuing to leave urban centers in the north 
and elsewhere, in major cities especially, where there were historically large black populations. These cities include Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, Oakland. We know this. We know there were going to be ghettos. We knew the Yankee white was not going to let you live in his neighborhood. And what is happening here is a reversal of what the Wall Street Journal calls a great migration that began in the early 20th century as millions of black Americans left the South looking for more economic opportunities and to flee racial violence, which, guess what? You ran right into in the North. Now, who's doing this shift in migration? According to the analysis here, it is the younger college-educated Blacks who are relocating from Northern and Western places to the South, according to the Brookings Institute. And many of them are worried and motivated by rising housing costs and guess what? Safety. Not safety from the whites. Safety from the blacks. Philadelphia. Baltimore. And the pandemic did not help. One of the people named Minor, M-I-N-O-R, who grew up in South Philadelphia, opened a barbershop there in 2016. Pandemic hit, crime rose, customers left the city. He's got to get out. He says, I need a better school district. I need a nicer neighborhood. This influx of black voters, many of them who vote Democratic has turned GOP-dominated Georgia into a swing state. Don't you think this is interesting? Nationwide, Black people have not suburbanized at the same level as the broader population. Black populations in southern metro areas have increased. Harris County, Texas, which includes Houston, added about 18,000 non-Hispanic black residents between mid-2021 and mid-2022. Lakeisha McLean-Williams moved to Clayton County, just south of Atlanta, in the fall of 2021. She's a 41-year-old nurse. She said she decided to get out of Willingboro, New Jersey because she was unhappy with the crime and the way the cops and the teenage blacks were interacting. This is an interesting story. I don't think it's going to change. It's uh, 
got a lot of dynamics to it. But it does, in my point of view, from looking at this from a long historical perspective, and to put this into some kind of perspective, you've got to go back to antebellum Southern life around the 1820s, 1830s, and put all of this into that historical context objectively the way it would be done in Roll Jordan Roll by Eugene Genovese, for example. Remember, it's very difficult, if even possible, for any American to talk honestly and objectively about race relations because every source of discussion is so corrupted with bias, prejudice, misinformation, sometimes even hysteria. You've got to get away from this culture and this time to look at it in perspective. Otherwise, you can't can't comprehend it just with sound bites. And it's part of a huge, huge uh, historical flow. And I think we're seeing the river kind of change course. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays itself out. Well, thanks for calling in, Mark. I uh, appreciate everybody watching. We're about to the end of the show today. All odds and ends Friday. I've just kind of drifted into that. I sort of like it. Hope you did. And uh, we hope you have a great weekend. Warhol Command Center out.